Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Last Sunday, the SBC released its sexual abuse report, and it revealed that the SBC Executive Committee had a list of over 700 abusive pastors, but they weren't using this list to protect churches or to protect victims, but instead to protect themselves and to protect the denomination. As the report goes on, it becomes totally evident that there is a rampant problem of sexual abuse and cover-ups running from the local level all the way up to the highest level of the SBC. We could talk more about the specifics here in a moment, but first maybe we should clarify the SBC is the Southern Baptist Convention, the United States' largest Protestant denomination. And when I saw the report on Sunday night, I saw it on the Christianity Today website, I just was deeply grieved by this in a way that really some of the other scandals that have happened probably should have grieved me, but frankly it hadn't. But as I read the articles, I was deeply saddened by the whole thing. I mean, think about the way Jesus treated women. And it was always with respect and dignity and value. All hurting people found that Jesus was a safe refuge. They sought him out. And yet now this report shows that in at least some churches, that wasn't the case. That those who were hurting and seeking out help were shamed and abused. So when we hear about this, I think we're supposed to have kind of a deep sadness and grief for the people who experienced the abuse, but also some anger, some righteous anger. We have to be careful not let it become self-righteous anger, but righteous anger at those who harmed the vulnerable because God cares about justice. He looks out for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, the abused. So we should be doing that too. We should be speaking up for these people instead of taking advantage of them. And I think it's important when you're talking about an abuse scandal of this magnitude, when you have an entire institution whose leadership has completely failed all members, all parts of the institution, it's really important not just to focus on the institution and the leadership, but to remember that when we're talking about sexual abuse, we're talking about real life people with real life stories. They grew up like everybody else in a family with parents, with friends, and their lives have been wrecked by sexual abuse. It's so important for me when I read these stories just to stop and remember what sexual assault often steals. It steals your sense of safety, autonomy, your sense of privacy. It can rip at your sense of self, who you are, what you are, how you exist in the world. It traumatizes you. It creates panic attacks. It often steals your mental health. It can create nightmares. It can make sexual contact terrifying. 
And that's absolutely awful. The effects of sexual abuse are long-term. They are not momentary. They go on in the lives of individual people. And when this happens inside a church, it only gets worse because now the church is associated with abuse. Now trusting leadership and people within your church suddenly becomes tremendously difficult. Trusting God, your ability to worship, all these things can be traumatized and affected by sexual abuse. And then it is even made worse when people who have been taken advantage of approach their church, the church leadership, and are told that they are the problem. They're shamed and blamed. They're told to keep their story quiet. They're told that they seduced their abuser. Somehow it's their fault. There's a woman named Krista Brown who is largely responsible for bringing all of this to public attention. She has written a book about her story. She grew up in a Southern Baptist church and was abused by her pastor when she was 16 years old. She's written about her experience, not only in the book, but also in columns in major newspapers across the country. But in the Christianity Today article, she said that her, quote, countless encounters with Baptist leaders who shunned and disbelieved her left a legacy of hate and communicated, you are a creature void of any value. You don't matter. As a result, she said, instead of her faith providing solace, her faith has become neurologically networked with a nightmare. She referred to it as soul murder. I mean, I just have to sit in that quote because she's right. When you're traumatized, when you experience sexual violence, it literally rewires your brain. And so she's talking about not just the trauma of being sexually abused, but then the trauma of being denied, of being shamed, of being condemned for what her abuser did to her. She calls it a neurologically networked nightmare. That's awful. It is absolutely awful. And so I think the place that we have to start in this case is by grieving with those who have been abused within the SBC. It's by showing anger towards their abusers who were justified by their denomination in many cases, protected by their denomination in many cases. That's where you have to start. And I wish we could go through and tell the stories of every survivor. The simple reality in this instance is that there are so many cases, it's almost impossible to lay out in a podcast like this. So I think maybe the best place to start is just by trying to tell the story from a 30,000-foot-up view. There's been great reporting, like Keith said, that's been done in Christianity Today. Look up an article by Kate Shellnut. We'll link to it in the show notes. And it's always hard to know where to start these kinds of things when we're talking about it in the podcast, because in an ideal world, you want to center the story on the victims because their story is the most important story. And yet we also have to talk about what's happened institutionally and what we can learn from it. So Keith, let's just start with the big picture here. So starting 22 years ago, people began to ring the alarm bell that there was predatory behavior happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. They wanted the leadership to investigate, look into it, try to expose what was happening, take corrective measures, learn from the mistakes that had been made. But instead, what happened is that the denomination leadership, and we got to be careful here because it's not all the member churches, it's not every Southern Baptist church, it's not every Southern Baptist church member. It's not even all the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. That's exactly right, but there were some key people at some key spots who made a tragic decision to turn a blind eye, to shame and blame, to protect the denomination at the expense of people. 
2018, a number of articles come out. There's one in the New York Times, another one in the Washington Post, and they're showing individual cases of abuse that took place inside of SBC churches. And J.D. Greer, he's elected to be the president of the SBC, and he says very clearly this is a big part of his platform. He's going to deal with this problem. But the central leadership, which you'd think the president's the guy in charge, it's not really how it works in the SBC. The central leadership is the EC, the executive committee, and they resist his every effort to try to make these things transparent. Yeah, I think most of us can understand that just because a president wants to do something, it doesn't mean the whole institution is going to turn on it. And there are people who have been a part of the SBC for years, decades. They have networks, relationship, power, big churches, money. And they colluded to make sure, or at least some of them, a handful of them, colluded to make sure that J.D. Greer's efforts would be thwarted. Then in 2019, the Houston Chronicle, and you may remember this, they had a whole big investigative series in which they uncovered 380 Southern Baptist-affiliated pastors who'd been accused of sexual abuse. I mean, just stop. I mean, I remember when this came out, and it was absolutely shocking. 380. Active pastors, 380 who had been accused of sexual abuse. Some of them convicted of sexual abuse, and they're still pastoring in SBC churches. And at the time, it seemed really unclear. The SBC almost played it off as though we had no idea this was the case. We didn't know about these people. We've got to do something. We've got to act. Now, in retrospect, it's turned out that they absolutely knew about almost all of these people. In fact, they knew about many more than just these people, and they were doing nothing about it. But this is what leads the Southern Baptist Convention to basically pay for a third party to come in and investigate these cases. And to the SBC's credit, it seems like they were very transparent. They gave them access to everything. But what this study uncovered was absolutely awful. And the group that has come in now and issued this report is called Guideposts. Yeah. And you're right. It was transparent. Rachel Denhollander tweeted that it's the most transparent investigation study that she's ever seen. And yeah, and course, she was she a part was of it. She was leading. Center of the Michigan State scandal in gymnastics. But, 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 but some of it was forced transparency because the executive committee didn't want to release all the documents and didn't want to release all the legal documents. And the messengers at the last convention voted. The messengers are just all the delegates from each individual local church. They're called messengers in the context of the SBC, they voted that the executive committee had to release all those documents. And so you can understand now why having been released, they were so reluctant because those documents made them look like, you know, horrible people. They made them look like monsters. And I don't want to be demonizing, but what they did was absolutely monstrous. What we've got to highlight here is there were voices inside of the SBC that were trying to make this happen. J.D. Greer being one, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which was led by Russell Moore at the time, they were pressing into this and the executive committee fought against them tooth and nail. In fact, they told the ERLC, Russell Moore's group, that they essentially couldn't speak about this or that they couldn't speak honestly about it, which is part of why Russell Moore left the SBC. So let's get into specifics and talk about what actually happened within the executive committee. Some of the problem is is that they listened to lawyers. Now, the lawyers, some of them were a part of the SBC, and then they hired a legal firm to give legal advice. and Which so, eventually had to step down because of their terrible advice in this situation. Well, they were they complicit in some of it because uh-huh. one of the lead lawyers, a man named Augie Boto, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he was involved in the SBC and also part of this legal team, this outside counsel, But the lawyers started to tell them, hey, cover this up. Be quiet about it. Don't admit any guilt. Don't try to 
take responsibility for taking these predatory pastors out of commission. Because if you do that, then you assume legal liability for everything that happens out there. And so if you can imagine you're part of this executive committee and you're being told by the legal team, you cannot pursue this, you can't expose this, you can't take corrective measures. Now you have a choice. Do you do what's biblically right? Or do you follow the legal team advice? And too many of them followed the legal advice instead of the biblical advice. So it might be helpful to read a quote from Augie Bada, or however you say his name, one of the lead counsels. who was a member of the SBC. He was also an attorney in different roles. But this is what he told the executive committee. I mean, this is wild. He says, this whole thing should be seen for what it is. So he's talking about these scandals and these cover-ups around the sexual abuse. He says, it is a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. It is not the gospel. It is not even a part of the gospel. It is a misdirection play. Yes, Krista Brown and Rachel Den Hollander have succumbed to an availability heuristic because of their victimizations. They have gone to the SBC looking for sexual abuse, and of course they found it. Their outcries have certainly caused an availability cascade, but they are not to blame. This is the devil being temporarily successful. Now you want to talk about a satanic statement. That's one. I mean, I literally don't know what possesses you to look at people who are trying to advocate on behalf of women and children who have been sexually abused and calls them satanic and then goes on to claim that militating against them is for the sake of the gospel, that you will protect the gospel and the gospel mission by silencing them and silencing all the other victims. But that's what their attorney's telling them. They've turned everything exactly upside down because God is the one who defends the powerless. There were so many people affected by this and they were ignored. Here's a story of a woman. Her name is Debbie Vasquez and she was repeatedly sexually assaulted by an SBC pastor starting at age 14. When one assault led to her getting pregnant, imagine this, she was forced to go in front of the church and apologize for her immorality, but told that she could not mention the man who impregnated her. So in other words, at 14 years old, she was forced to take responsibility for this in front of church, in front of the whole church. But the person who impregnated her, this adult man who had power over her, this pastor, his name was never mentioned. And then when Vasquez reached out to the executive committee, she was ignored until the Houston Chronicle exposed her story and told her story. You don't have words for that. 14 years old? I mean, that's rape. It, it is rape. And this guy, he went on to pastor other churches in the SBC, in the EC. They did nothing about it. In fact, this is one of the most condemning things. Starting back in 2007, they became so aware of the problem of predation inside of their denomination that they asked one of their staff members to start creating a list of pastors who had been arrested or sued over abuse. So in 2007, that list starts and they gather 66 names. By 2022, that list grows to 703 names with 409 of them currently serving in SBC-affiliated churches, over which they did Nothing. Well, but here's even worse, if it's possible to be even worse, at least in the sense of hiding it worse, is that according to Russell Moore, people had been advocating for them to start a database of abusers so they could keep track of it and form other churches so that they would make sure that one pastor wasn't just moving from church to church abusing people. But the denomination had told them, no, according to our definition of how we organize ourselves, structure ourselves, and share power and authority, we can't come up with that kind of a database. So they were told, we can't come up with a database. 
in order to keep people from being sexual predators. But they had a database. The whole time they had a database of people. They knew who they were doing it while telling. They were tracking these people. They knew where they were. They knew what city and state they were in. They knew what churches they served in. This is all kept on an Excel spreadsheet. While telling people they can't do it. It, they did it to defend themselves. The whole point That's was... That's the point I'm trying to make. Yes. The, the whole point was, how do we protect the denomination? How do we make sure that these guys who we know are out there molesting children, raping women, how do we make sure they don't affect us? But there are more stories, sad stories. So let's just keep going. And a lot of these stories that we're telling have to do with the executive committee and the people who are on it because it shows the cover-up and the abuse. So there's a guy named Paige Patterson, who you may be familiar with that name. He was the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of their flagship seminaries down in Fort Worth, Texas. And he was telling female students who reported rape to him to not go to the police, to not make this public. Again, there's this common theme. We're going to protect the denomination. We're going to protect the reputation of leaders in the denomination instead of helping those who have been hurt. I mean, it's wild when you start getting into the details because you begin to realize that the members of the executive committee weren't just covering up molestations and rapes inside of churches. They were perpetrating them themselves, and they were covering up examples that they personally knew about. So Paige Patterson, another example, and he wasn't the only one in the executive committee who did this. He supported a pastor named Daryl Gilliard. Now, this guy, he had 44 different women from different churches come to the executive committee. This is amazing. And they did Nothing. This is from the report. They said in almost every instance, they were reportedly shamed. The women were. They were reportedly shamed for it and left feeling like they were not believed. From all published accounts, it seems Gilliard moved from church to church and left with ruined lives in his wake. 44 women from different churches and they ignore it. They don't see a common pattern. They don't see, hey, there's something here. They that not only ignored it. When, it. when it came out, Paige Patterson publicly defended this guy. Well, he, he, also- he knew and he publicly defended him. Well, Paige Patterson, he's the name that keeps coming up over and over and over, but he had a lot of influence, a lot of power. He held a really important position. He was probably the most powerful, influential person in the SBC for two decades. And misused it because he used his power to shame the victims. So he said about these sexual abuse victims who are trying to advocate for themselves, he said they were just as reprehensible as sex criminals. And about Krista Brown, whose story we told earlier, she's also one who is behind for a long time, stopbaptistpredators.org. He called her a person of no integrity. And he wasn't alone. Members of the executive committee publicly defended child molesters, we now know. And two, SBC presidents did not report child molesters, some of whom went on to rape more children. Some of the executive committee members themselves were involved in this kind of abuse. It wasn't just they were covering up other people's abuse. They were involved in it. So Paul Pressler, who was the number two guy to Paige Patterson for a number of years, a member of the executive committee, he right now is being sued for abusing young boys. And it seems like a credible lawsuit. Johnny Hunt, and this is new, came out in the report, and I don't think anybody knew about this until just recently. There's buildings named after this guy at Baptist seminaries. He was the Southern Baptist Convention president from 2008 to 2010, and the report said that he had assaulted another man's wife by forcibly groping and kissing her. Now, he had denied that, but the report had other witnesses who corroborated that woman's story in it. He resigned from his position 
within the SBC and as a pastor in Georgia just a couple weeks before the report came out, knowing that it was going to expose what he had done. So this was actually a pastor and a pastor's wife is who it happened to. He brought the pastor and his wife into his church. I'm getting big, powerful name in the SBC. And he told them that they needed to keep it secret for the sake of 40,000 churches. In other words, if you reveal the truth, you are going to wreck the faith of millions of people out there. And so here's a pastor and his wife who are much younger than this man. 24 years younger. And they care about Jesus and they care about people coming to faith. And now here they're being told that if they tell the truth, if they expose him, they're really harming people's faith. It's just a ridiculous position to put anyone in. So we could keep going through more and more and more stories, unfortunately, but I want us to transition here and talk about some takeaways. What can we learn from these awful stories and how should evangelicalism in general and evangelicals change so that we can prevent these things from happening in the future? We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Can I just start with this, that I've been accused lately of pointing out the flaws of evangelicals and been told, you and I have both been told, that we have highlighted the sins and flaws of kind of a fringe people and that we've painted with too broad of a brush and the evangelicals don't deserve some of the bad reputation that they've gotten lately. And I'm just done with it. I'm done with that accusation. I'm over it. So here we go. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. And here it has over 700 pastors who are on their own sexual abuse database. It is ridiculous to act like that's some fringe movement. Liberty University, with the largest Christian university in the nation, has a lot of the same problems the Southern Baptists did. You might remember that their leader, Jerry Falwell Jr., resigned in disgrace. So that's not some fringe movement. That's the largest Christian university. Or how about Mars Hill? You've heard us talk about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's one of the flagship churches in evangelicalism, and we know that it was a dumpster fire. A lot of the same problems happening in the SBC happened there. Now, they were wider, more varied problems, but there was definitely the abuse of women. 
Kanakuk, one of the nation's largest, if not the largest Christian sports camp, had similar problems. You can read the articles about that. Ravi Zacharias, who led one of the largest and most respected outreach and apologetic ministries, had sex problems, taking advantage of women, abusing them, and then covering that up. Now, one thing that all these stories have in common is that they were abusing sex, misusing sex, mistreating people, covering up. And these aren't fringe movements. These aren't like, you know, the Westboro people who are just these crackpots out there. These are widely respected, large ministries and denominations. So enough with all saying that we're just picking fringe. No, we're not. I just have to add on to this. I've had to defend this so many times. I love the church. I even, in some sense, love evangelicalism. I was rescued and saved in this movement. And yet, in the same breath, because I love this institution, that is precisely the reason why I will name and mourn and grieve and call out what's wrong with it. And I take that pattern from the Psalms. That is how Israel acted towards itself. Do you know how many Psalms there are where Israel is confessing their idolatry, their sexual sins, their gross and absolute immorality? It's all over the place. If you love evangelicalism and you can't hear this, I don't think you love it enough. You don't. Is if you loved it, you would join Israel. You would mourn when these things happen and say, how can we be a better representative of Jesus? Because the right response here is not to hide and protect. It is to lament. It is sackcloth and ashes. It is to acknowledge what has been done. It is to feel deep sorrow over it. It is to repair relationships as much as you can. It is to take corrective measures to make sure that they don't happen in the future. But nothing is gained from hiding. Absolutely. Here's another takeaway. I think evangelicals have to start understanding sexual abuse. One of the major problems you see, not just in this story, but in other stories, is that when these abuse cases happens, they're often misrepresented. The abused person is treated as though they were seducing the abuser or as though they were having consensual sex with the abuser. And what we don't seem to understand in evangelicalism is the nature of power in sexual relationships. The reality that when you have a pastor or an individual in power, what they do sexually is almost almost never <laughs> conceptual because of the power that they have. And I think the other half of this is that we have to understand the long-term trauma of sexual abuse. And I think for a lot of evangelicals, we're just a little bit glib or oblivious to the long-term consequences. So, you know, I just have to say this. I would highly recommend maybe picking up a few books if you're new to this. Redeeming Power, which is by Diane Lambert, is all about authority and abuse in the church. Another book is A Church Called Tove by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger. Tove is the Hebrew word for good. Another great book that's dealing with how do we create churches where abuse cannot thrive, where abuse cannot grow. And along those lines, we have to, as Christians, care more about people than institutions. Because a lot of what is done, whether it's at Mars Hill or Ravi Zacharias Ministries or Canacock or the SBC, is that people protect institutions instead of individuals. And you get the idea, at least I do, is that this institution is doing so much good that we can't let this one or two or five or 10 or 300 or 700 (laughs) bad stories, you can't let those individual bad stories keep this institution from doing all the good. But it all backfires. Here's what the right response is, I think. The right response is to be honest and to be open and confess because what builds credibility and trust is when you're honest about mistakes you've made. You're honest about the sins you've committed. And let's just be open. And when it's criminal like this, you just turn it over to the police and let the police do their thing. But in an attempt to hide, to protect the institution, what you end up doing is really decimating the institution and dishonoring the name of Jesus. I'm going to say something that might be a little bit controversial, but I do think- I don't like what you're going to say. I know. Because I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. But I do wonder to what degree this is generational. 
I want to say that for two reasons. It's not a boomer versus millennial thing. It's a when you're in your 70s and you spent your whole life building an institution, is it any shocker that your gut level reaction is going to be to protect the institution? I like it the way you said it. It's not a boomer, millennial, Gen Z, Gen X thing. It's that when you have identified yourself so much with an institution, then your identity being wrapped up in that motivates you to protect it at all costs and to see people's hurt and pain as being your enemy, something you're against. As a threat to something that you build. That's right. And that's why you have to change your attitude. The threat is not being honest. The threat is not telling the truth. The threat is not caring for people. And I also just wonder if especially older generations of men are simply ill-equipped to handle these situations. They didn't get a class on it in seminar. I'm not defending them, but what I am saying is that as a millennial who's watched these stories unfold, there's 0.0% question about how I want to handle these kinds of situations when they come forward in the future, because I've seen so clearly the evil it causes in the lives of victims and survivors when we deny their stories when we push them away or when we shame them and condemn them. Once you see that, you can't unsee it. Well, you said men there, and I don't know that the executive committee is only made up of men. I think it has like 86 members, if I remember right. I believe it's all men. But I think it's all men. All the quotes I've ever read are men, so I have every reason to believe that it's all men. And regardless of where you are on female ordination and that kind of stuff, that's not the issue here. The issue that I think is important is to say that in these kind of conversations, there need to be both men and women because had women been in some of those conversations, they would have said, there's no possible way that this 14-year-old is going up in front of this church to confess her sin and the guy is not even going to be named and he's going to go be a pastor somewhere. There's no woman who would do that. Now, there shouldn't have been a man who would do it either, but I think having women sitting in that room would bring more lived experience, as the kids say, yeah. to the conversation. I mean, here's the deal. It doesn't actually matter if you're egalitarian or complementarian, whether you no, has think no, women should or shouldn't be ordained. Because guess what? You can go to a lot of egalitarian churches that have these exact same problems. Here's what I do think matters. Does your leadership structure have a plurality where it's not just one person in control? That's fact number one you got to consider. Fact number two, does that plurality include women? And you don't have to ordain women to put them on the highest level of leadership in your church. And that might sound counterintuitive to you. We've done it at our church. I've seen it done in other places. And that is a practical step every church can take is getting women in those positions. Obviously, institutions, churches, ministries need to put in things that will try to prevent this. Background checks and not allowing NDAs to keep victims quiet. All those things are good. We should do them. We practice them here. Absolutely. They are a ground level, of course, must, yes. No compromises. And yet at the same time, those things are not enough if you don't have people of integrity overseeing them. Mm, that's exactly right. And I think along those lines, church staff and church members should have some clear avenues to report abuse that at times can bypass head leaders, because how do you protect yourself against a head pastor, which is what happened in most of these cases? Well, you have to have other avenues open. And obviously, we need to provide, financially provide, supporting care to people who are survivors, counseling, whatever they need to find healing from this awful, grievous thing that's been done to them. And I would just say this to you as an individual, if you're looking for a church, that's something I would look for. I'd want to know I was at a church that did rigorous background checks, that had good avenues for people to go through if there were abusive situations. And those should be questions, by the way, you shouldn't be afraid to ask. And if your church is weird about you asking, that creates a whole different subset of questions. Now, if you're in a church and maybe those things aren't in place, maybe that's something you can bring to the table saying, hey, I think this should wake us up. I think this should stir us up. What can we do as a church to change our structures so that this kind of thing doesn't happen here? 
Right. That's not a matter of not trusting your church leadership. It's a matter of knowing humanity, the human condition, and how sin can destroy all of us. So this isn't a matter of, I think my pastor is going to do something bad. It's a matter of, let's put a system in place that holds us all accountable. So if anything ever happened bad by anyone in the church, it would be quickly exposed and corrected. Absolutely. And I think along the same lines, we have to have an honest conversation about grace and forgiveness. One of the other patterns that comes up in here is defending the decision to defend abusers by saying we were showing grace and forgiveness. Now, I believe in grace and forgiveness. I believe we should show it to everyone, but consequences aren't the opposite of grace and forgiveness. Reporting something to the police is not the opposite of grace and forgiveness. Making a pastor step down from ministry permanently is not the opposite of grace and forgiveness. Creating a list with that pastor on it so that people know about him so he can't go and abuse more people, that's not the opposite of grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness looks like letting that person live with the consequences and then probably separately from the church in a different place or a different way if they are repentant, helping them to go through their own process. But it needs to be away from the people that they victimize and the survivors who are left behind in the wake. Yeah, I think if you want to pursue that, because we could talk about that for a long time, there's a great book called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Braun. And one of the things he does is he helps you separate forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm. Those are two different things that we oftentimes get confused and say, well, if you forgive someone, then you should forget. And if you forget, then why not just put them back in the same spot? No, 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 flawed, unbiblical, don't go down that road. And in that process, I think that the church has to remember the focal point, in my opinion, has to be the victim and the survivors. They need to get priority in our hearts and our time and our resources over the abusers. They get number one. And often because the person who abused is the person who's in power, it's exactly the opposite. So when I started reading these articles on Sunday night, I just was kind of grieved by the whole thing. And I'm not usually, maybe this isn't good about me, it's probably not, but I'm not usually overwhelmed by these kind of things because I know there's going to be sinful people. I know there's sin in my own heart. I read the Bible. There are sinners everywhere. There are sinners everywhere in my life. And so I kind of have low expectations for humanity. And, you know, those low expectations keep me sane sometimes. It's hard to disappoint me or shock me. But reading these, I, for some reason, was shocked. And I think part of it is because so many people were complicit in it. You know, like if you went to Ravi Zechariah's ministry, it seemed like mainly one person and a few surrounding him. And the same you could say for Kennecock or Mars Hill. But this was a whole institution. This was lots of people in power and authority, lots of people that were lead pastors, lots of people who were very respected, lots of local individual churches. And I think maybe that's why it just hit me a little bit harder that this wasn't just one isolated case where a few people kind of made some bad decisions. This was a lot of people making very destructive decisions, hurtful, harmful decisions over decades. So if you're out there, I guess my point is, if you're out there and you're hearing this and your faith is shaken, yeah, I get it. So maybe Patrick will lead us to the promised land here, but I'm with you today. I get it. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I feel shaken too. I think you and I are actually really different because probably temperamentally, all of those things you mentioned did shake me and did affect me in yeah, a similar more way. Than it did me, yeah. But you, you know, you aren't alone. I mean, Russell Moore said something similar. I mean, he knew about a lot of this, and he said that even reading the report, which he already knew a lot about walking in, that it shook him deeply to his core. And I think it should shake everybody deeply to their core. And what I have to remind myself is that God isn't complicit. 
God is more grieved than we are about what's happened in the SBC. And he was the one who was working through human agents like Krista Brown and Rachel Den Hollander to bring this evil to light. And the consequences that are going to come upon the SBC, upon the executive committee leadership, I certainly hope that there's going to be lawsuits and probably some criminal prosecution that needs to happen as a result of this. That's God's just judgment coming to light, coming to bear on those people for their wrongdoing. And I have to remember, that's God acting. God wasn't acting when the pastor molested the child. God is acting to bring that molester to justice. That's where his heart is. And so I think that the answer when I hear these things is not to pull away from God, but to draw near to him and say, I want to be like you. I want to love justice like you love justice. I want to protect the vulnerable like you protect the vulnerable. I want to speak the truth and love the light like you speak the truth and you love the light. Jesus shows us the way forward. He doesn't bring us back into this kind of evil darkness that has characterized the SBC for all these decades. Be sober for this. Pray for Christ's church. Look into your own heart and ask, where are sins that I've gotten comfortable with? Are there sins that I'm not accountable for? What are ways that I might be going astray on a different level, in a different way? But nonetheless, this can be a chance for some self-examination. And put your hope in Jesus, not in people, not in pastors, not in church leadership, not in institutions. Jesus is the one who is our hope. He's the one who said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So we know we're going to face opposition. Sometimes that opposition comes from us, from inside the church, but it redirects our focus to make sure that we are on Jesus and that he's our hope. And last of all, let's just remember to grieve with those who have been affected by sexual abuse inside of the church, not just in the SPC, but inside of the church, period. Let's grieve with them. Let's weep with them. Let's pray for them, pray for their families. Today is probably most painful for those who lived through this hell firsthand, even though it's coming to light. So let's make our prayers be with them. Let's cry with them. Let's weep. And let's bring this before our Lord who loves them. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop, no, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.